The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Kim Richmond. He is a founding partner at Richmond Law Group, which specializes in consumer protection and civil rights litigation with the goal of protecting public health and our environment. Through his litigation, Mr. Richmond tries to clean up our adulterated food systems and our shared environment. His consumer protection and watchdog actions include addressing trans fat, GMOs, pesticides, and antibiotics. He received his JD from Brooklyn Law School and his BA in psychology and an international relations certificate from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where he graduated summa cum laude. Mr. Richmond practices law in the District of Columbia and New York, where he is the state chair for the National Association of Consumer Advocates. He is a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union and is active in the National Consumer Law Center. Welcome, Mr. Richmond. Thank you, Melinda. Great to be here. Well, you have done such impressive work, but I want to start our conversation with just a simple understanding of what led you to study and practice law. It's actually my work in public service had always been a grassroots organizer and a public health advocate, which is what I identify first and foremost as, and realized a law degree could perhaps propel my work forward in the future. And indeed, a lot of the work that I do today is all about our public health. And your firm is a certified B corporation. Tell me what that means. That's correct. We've seen explosion of mission-driven organizations, including businesses that have a double bottom line that are not all about answering to shareholders, but believe in supporting the environment, animal welfare, public health. And it's with that spirit that we got ourselves certified as a B Corp. Well, I met you at a Beyond Pesticides forum where I heard you speak about using litigation as a way to move legislation in a positive way to protect public health. Can you give me some specific examples how you've used litigation to help push legislation? Sure. Typically, we turn to legislation and, and regulations to protect our health. Unfortunately, especially in this day and age and with the current administration, more and more folks are growing frustrated with the lack of enforcement or ability to pass progressive legislation. But given that we have rebranched the government, the judiciary has proven to be um, a pillar of hope and has been a way in which a lot of our our base, our clients, have been able to make policy by way of litigation. We have often said that what cannot be achieved by way of legislation or regulation can perhaps be achieved by way of litigation. But in an ideal world, all three go hand in hand, and that the litigation and the legislation and the regulations all are pulling in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because so often I think we feel comforted when a law does go into place, 
But oh, there's that little special piece called enforcement where what I've witnessed seems to be oftentimes we have the law, but we don't have the funds for enforcement. Do you see that as well? It's unfortunate that often we see our government subject to special interests. And the beauty of the work that we do is that it's considered a private right of action where we're not beholden to any corporate interests. All we're looking to do is advance the interests of consumers, of nonprofits, and in some cases, progressive businesses. And so with that, we're able to address a whole host of issues. Sometimes things can be deemed legal due to some antiquated federal regulation. However, nonetheless, is perhaps poisoning our, our bodies and our environment. And we have no recourse except using sometimes litigation in a creative way. We can address issues that are perhaps legal, but nonetheless unlawful and lethal in some cases. And so this is how we have been able to effectively act as private attorney generals when, in fact, the government perhaps doesn't have the motivation to protect everyday citizens. All right. Let's talk about some of your victories. I want to specifically bring forth General Mills and Nature Valley granola bars, because I think that as a consumer educator, when we go into the marketplace, certainly the color of the package, everything seems to be painted green these days. And then you put on that nice little natural label and people think that it's equal to or in sometimes even better than organic. So there's a lot of consumer misperception. Tell me what happened in the case of the Nature Valley granola bars. So this is part and parcel to our work in the interest of our public health. And I had historically gone after everything from trans fat to GMOs. And what we had seen is, unfortunately, issues of certain pesticides further adulterating our, our food systems. In this case, namely glyphosate, commonly known as Roundup. Glyphosate is the active ingredient of this weed killer that typically was used to indeed just kill weeds and then perhaps was sprayed on Roundup-ready crops and corn. And then it was then used as a desiccant, as a drying agent to bring the crop to market quicker rather than letting Mother Nature do its thing. Oftentimes, farmers found in particularly northern climates that they sprayed on the oats or, or wheat that they could indeed hasten the process. And so as a result of, of course, using glyphosate as a desiccant five to ten days before harvest, it has a greater likelihood of popping up in our actual food products. And so I started this work on behalf of consumers and nonprofits alike and had seen that it was indeed in, in many products from our granola bars to our oatmeal. We thought that it would be relegated to those two corners of our food systems, but lo and behold, we found that it actually is fairly ubiquitous and have found it in other consumer products. So the way that we endeavored to address this issue of glyphosate in our food systems was by using yes, truth, and advertising. When companies purport to be natural or some iteration thereof, such as pure or clean or made without, we're able to use truth in advertising as a very simple yet effective legal theory to address not only perhaps what's found in the product itself, in this line of cases, glyphosate, we can also perhaps get into the process by which the food is being manufactured. And we have found that the one common denominator in all the work that we've done is 
that the supply chain is indeed broken, adulterated, dirty, so to speak, and that we need to obviously address this and do so by using false and deceptive advertising statutes to address these larger public health issues. So, Kim, is this an area where the definition of natural is so critically important? So, this is a term that has not been defined by the FDA. As much as the FDA has been petitioned to do so, it is an undefined term. And as you alluded to, it's one in which industry has indeed glommed onto because it is actually far easier, right, and cheaper to use a term like natural versus going through the process of becoming organic. Right. And USDA organic seal is still perhaps the most robust legislation, the way in which we can protect our food systems. But given that the companies have been using terms that are not regulated and properly defined, it leads to, of course, a lot of consumer confusion. And with that, we then find ourselves on these new front lines of protecting consumers and and the general public in terms of our public health. Well, my question really relates to the fact that if there isn't a definition, then it really gives the manufacturer a lot of leeway to define it however they wish. So if you go back to truth in advertising, but there isn't a definition to say, well, that's false or it doesn't meet that definition, where does that leave you in a court of law? So with regards to the legal standard, which is a reasonable consumer standard, it's frankly up to ultimately a jury to decide. Mm. And with regards to the consciousness that we've seen around our food, there is indeed more and more cases that can address this, this issue effectively. And we can address everything from glyphosate to neonics and beyond in terms of our food products, unfortunately, not being perhaps as healthy as they should be or as clean as they should be or as organic as they should be. Right. Exactly. Well, and there is also the issue of high fructose corn syrup, another ingredient where if you ask the typical consumer, would you consider this product to be quote unquote natural, they might say no. So in addition to pesticide residues, you've also got these ingredients that are highly manipulated and highly processed in otherwise naturally termed products. That's correct. And with a lot of processed foods in which you see, you know, a dozen plus ingredients in any given product, it's concerning. Fortunately, unlike the EU, where they abide by the the precautionary principle, here in the United States, we unfortunately are, are often treated like guinea pigs. With regards to some of my initial work in trans fat, for instance, we were able to use truth in advertising to address trans fat levels, which we knew from the emerging science at the time that this was extremely unhealthy. But the FDA did not take any action. It was not until perhaps a decade later before they deemed trans fat to be unfit for human consumption. And so oftentimes we need to take action. We need to to advocate. We need to organize in order to protect our public health, our environment, animal welfare, as well as labor rights, which are all tenets that I think on one level or another are recognized in the USDA organic regime. And so this, again, is the best model I think that we have in terms of regulating our food system. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, I want to just raise a personal question because this is something, another term that I've seen out in the marketplace that concerns me a great deal. And it's this term healthy. You know, I'm a homeowner. I have a, well, my lawn is shrinking. I'm putting more and more native wildflowers in, but I received in the mail a promotion for True Green. They're in the lawn business. You want to grow a great lawn. That's how they're going to do it. And they say that they have a healthy lawn guarantee. So as a consumer and someone who's very interested in water, water quality, runoff from lawns, how that impacts insects and birds and other wildlife, fish. I called True Green and I asked them what kind of chemicals they used. Going back to this idea that, well, they're going to give me a healthy lawn. They must be using only certified organic products. I don't know. And one of the gentlemen I spoke to said that they use a product called Talstar, which is a bifenthrin. And I did a little more research and it said it's highly toxic to bees. So here we have an example, not in the food world, but in the land and water quality world, where we see this healthy, quote unquote, guarantee, but a very unhealthy product is being used as part of their practice. What do I do as a consumer? So as people's awareness and consciousness grows around our food systems, corporate America is very mindful of the fact that this obviously spills over into other areas of our purchasing habits, whether it be our lawns or our pet food or beyond. They are indeed you know, using perhaps certain marketing techniques that we would deem to be perhaps considered Greenwashing is a term. We've also seen humane washing, etc. And this is, again, where perhaps the um, marketing department uh, gets ahead of the um, actual supply chain or the legal department for that matter and is obviously trying to capture as many dollars as possible without doing the actual necessary work. And with regards to lawn care, we have indeed turned our focus accordingly. Glyphosate and other pesticides are unfortunately ubiquitous. We see it not only in our oats and our wheat, it's popped up in everything from honey to orange juice to tea. And when, unfortunately, you test perhaps 90% of the population, they would detect positive for levels of glyphosate. And it just goes to show you how it has seeped into not only our food, not only into our lawns, but into our, our bodies. And this is obviously disturbing. We, of course, want to take as holistic of approach to address these issues. Unfortunately, playing this whack-a-mole game is not only tiresome, but not as effective as sweeping legislation. But nevertheless, a multifaceted advocacy approach can indeed be an effective theory of change, as could, in fact, taking this direct market-based approach, as we do with a lot of these consumer protection cases, as well as consumer watchdog cases. Mm-hmm. So, This obviously is an issue that we will be battling, but it does take a tremendous amount of coordination through litigation, legislation, regulation to really effectively address the issue. Absolutely. All right, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Kim Richmond, founding partner at Richmond Law Group, which specializes in consumer protection and civil rights litigation with the goal of protecting public health and our environment. Well, I want to talk about some of these compounds that we find in our environment through the COVID-19 lens. And there was a recent article in Environmental Health News 
that linked toxic chemicals to an increase in COVID-19 deaths because what these chemicals often do is they impair our immune system. So I think that you know when we talk about the importance of having good regulations in the marketplace to keep these toxins out of our food system, out of our water, we now have even more reason to do so because we've got a huge threat with this virus and we have to keep our immune system strong. Have you been using the COVID-19 lens as well in your work? So we are indeed experiencing extraordinary times here with this pandemic. And it is obviously disturbing to us all. A lot of the work that we do, public health issues, is aimed to indeed avoid this very situation we find ourselves in today. We have seen that a lot of our clients have been effectively the canaries in the coal mine and trying to get in front of these issues before they they rise to the level of being a public safety issue. But here we are, and we, I think, effectively are seeing a, a confluence of issues that we've all been doing our best to address, whether it be our our public health, our environment, animal welfare issues, et cetera. And they've all, fortunately, have come to bear. And we see our food systems, as we speak, imploding. The meatpacking plants are now the source of the largest spikes of the pandemic in the Midwest. And I think it brings into sharp focus, perhaps, a food system that has to change. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm wondering about the role of healthcare providers, and I'm really glad you brought up the meatpacking situation because we have seen, as you described, pockets of high rates of infection among workers who, by the nature of the work, cannot be socially distanced. They are reporting to work with unreasonably fast production lines. I understand USDA wants to increase the line speed even more to handle this backlog of animals that need to be processed. But I wonder if healthcare providers have reached out to you to ask for some kind of legal protection because as these workers become ill and they go into their regional hospitals or sometimes even having to travel farther away from their own cities and towns into larger municipalities where the hospitals have greater equipment or better skills to handle this virus, we're basically putting healthcare workers at greater risk because of the meat processing plants being in operation. No, it's true. And indeed, the medical professionals are the first responders. And by extension, the folks working in these meat packing plants are acting as as first responders in a sense and are right there on the front line being exposed and jeopardized. And it's unfortunate because there are other industries, whether it be organic companies or perhaps uh, sustainable food businesses, that are not putting profit above all else, that recognize this double bottom line, that it's also about sustainability and would not put their, their workers in harm's way and have this the situation just really proliferate as we've seen right before our eyes today. And it's time for, frankly, yes, people to come to defend, whether it be healthcare professionals or including the actual workers on these lines. And you see some action being taken. There is, in fact, a recent case that was filed by an organization called Towards Justice with regards to one of the uh, Smithfield plants 
and I foresee that there will be more litigation to that end. Mm, I hope so. And of course, these cases take a while in the courts. And when every minute that passes is so critical, I wonder, what are your thoughts about the length of time it takes to to see justice? And it's true, right? The wheels of justice and turn slowly and justice delayed is justice denied. And, you know, unfortunately, there seems to be no other recourse given whether it be the CDC or the president uh, not uh, stopping to and requiring certain mandatory changes, as is typically the case with the CDC, or perhaps a uh, executive order that doesn't say these plants must remain open, but rather must close. And so it's all, frankly, upside down and brings us to some of our original discussion points at the top of the interview with regard to how, unfortunately, you know, the legislation and the litigation are not going hand in hand, but mm-hmm. that this is where, of course, citizens need to step up in defense of, of workers and medical professionals and themselves. Mm-hmm. And there are so many of us to help give voice to those who are suffering in this system. I wonder if you could address the issue of public shaming. I know it has come up in different conversations about what is the role of the consumer advocate to raise these issues to, I like the way public shaming has worked in the past to push legislation. I'm seeing it as a catalyst. Tell me where you think that has a role. So I think when it comes to advocacy, it is a uh, multi-layered strategy. And I think that there's, of course, legal advocacy, but it doesn't really mean anything if it occurs in a vacuum. And we need to obviously coordinate as lawyers with folks who are dedicated to public education, to, yes, legislation and regulation. And those are the advocacy efforts that need to be more closely aligned and coordinated in order to make an impact. The concept of, of public shaming or the court of public opinion, if not the court of law, need to indeed be part and parcel to a larger strategy. The nature of what we do as advocates, as legal advocates, is impact litigation, which typically means that we often see our work in conjunction with larger advocacy efforts, whether it be social media campaigns, whether it be public education, or indeed pending legislation. And so I think that we need to have a more dynamic perspective on, on advocacy and understand that it's not just lawyers who can advocate, but obviously non-lawyers who perhaps are even more effective in terms of getting the word out to the larger public. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about class action lawsuits, because I think this is a really interesting idea about the ways we can get, you know, these David and Goliath stories where we have large groups of consumers who are affected, say a large community is circulating around a meat processing plant, for example. It's not just the workers. It's not just the healthcare providers. It's an entire community of people who can be exposed. How might a class action lawsuit work? And what are the steps for consumers to take if they want to bring one forth? Sure. And so a lot of the issues that we're discussing here in the program are systemic issues, problems that we see repeatedly throughout our our broken food systems. And so how do you address such a problem? And the class action device, if used in a 
creative and appropriate fashion can be one measure that that a consumer can consider. And so with a consumer protection class action suit against a food company, which we have seen for better or for worse proliferate throughout courts across the country, can indeed move the needle in terms of having companies embrace better practices. I do believe that unfortunately, sometimes these cases can be perhaps more about the attorneys than it is about the class. And you have cases that are untethered from the larger public health mission. And those are cases that I think, frankly, wear on courts and judges across the country. But nevertheless, um, they can be effective. One consumer can indeed be the voice of a nation for a product that perhaps has engaged in some form of food fraud. And so this is obviously a very, in some sense, grassroots way in which one person can be the voice of, of many. In addition to consumer protection class action suits where folks step forward on behalf of other consumers, we have seen many nonprofits, especially in this administration, stepping forward where legislation and regulations seem to be ineffective. And nonprofits are able to not only step forward and be the voice of consumers, but also of the general public. And there are certain places in the country, namely in D.C., wherein nonprofits do, in fact, have standing to sue, have statutory standing, tester standing to step forward and be the, the voice of the general public. And so I think that there are a lot of private rights of action that are emerging that are, are promising in terms of, of food reform. So maybe from a consumer's perspective, one of the first steps that we can take is to align ourselves with a nonprofit, because otherwise I think that we often feel like we're not empowered. And I, I like the idea of joining with a larger organization that has similar motivations to maybe move the ball a little bit faster together rather than feeling alone and isolated. That's correct. And even moms and dads who we've represented over the years are extremely knowledgeable and articulate and protective, right, of themselves and their families. And they have been just wonderful, powerful voices when it comes to stepping forward in a class action lawsuit. And it is very much the David and Goliath. But the legal system does allow for them to indeed have a voice. Mm -hmm. um, but their voice alone is, is sometimes not enough. And doing this this advocacy work, whether it be as a lawyer or as a mom or a dad, working with NGOs, nonprofits across the country and in the world has been very powerful in that they often have their ear firmly pressed to the ground and have made it their, their mission to be those canaries in the mine. And so working with local nonprofits, international nonprofits, is indeed a, a powerful way to further organize. If people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, I'm assuming if I provide a link to your website, that would be the best approach? Yes, that's correct. RichmondLawGroup.com. Emphasis on the group as we do indeed regard ourselves as a legal collective working with moms and dads and nonprofits and progressive businesses across the country. That's great. Well, you've got a fantastic group of attorneys working with you. And you've got a great review of your mission, as well as the organizations and nonprofits and the cases that you've won, as well as pending cases, which are also very interesting. 
So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Kim Richman, founding partner at Richmond Law Group, which specializes in consumer protection and civil rights litigation with the goal of protecting public health and our environment. We have a lot of work to do together. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda.